Movie Buff Specialist Phil and John are back as we continue counting down our favorite 100 films of all time. It's episode number 73, and we are up to movie number 28 on our list. For John, it is Beauty and the Beast. For myself, it is Whiplash. For John, Whiplash will not be in his next uh, top 100 list. Um, Beauty and the Beast, Beauty and the Beast, man, is tough for me. I feel like one day I just got to suck it up, bite the bullet, and put it in my freaking top 100. But it always seems to just get overshadowed. I don't know what it is. These classic Disney movies just never make it into my top 100, even though this, Robin Hood, The Lion King, those are movies that like I literally will throw on at any time, any day, anywhere, and be totally content. John, though, actually does go ahead and put this movie up there high, nice and high, number 28 with Beauty and the Beast. But uh, music, music heavy, music heavy week here, um, which is what led to a lot of John's anger, but I just, you know, John, how you doing before, before we get into it? Cause I'm going to get to talk about whiplash first, my damn movie. Yeah. But, uh, how, how you doing? I'm doing great. Uh, you know what? Uh, my movie, movie viewing has been very few and far between this week, by which I mean, I only watched two movies this week. Uh, the two that we're talking about, but mm-hmm. other than that, like, you know, life feels like we're, we're getting back to normal with everything with, uh, the summer coming to a close. So movie viewing should go up again. Yeah, man, I've been struggling to watch some movies, too. Uh, I watched only one other movie this week, so uh, that's going to be a really boring segment for everybody who's wondering what the best thing we watched this week was. Because for John, it was nothing. Although I think we did this once before, and it was like, what are you most looking forward to coming out yes. or something like that? So we'll have to, I'll have to get that spin on this, try to make it a little bit dramatic, a little bit fun. But uh, anyway, we're going to be talking about Whiplash first, because obviously not as popular as Beauty and the Beast. Although I think Alexa and I already did a Beauty and the Beast podcast at one point, so it'd be did. funny to see how this differs. Um, because I remember John was super excited, and then like we let him come on and talk about the Princess and the Frog, and he trashed that the way he's about to trash Whiplash. So anyway... I'm going to go ahead. I'm going to talk about Whiplash first. I'm going to give my reasonings why it's in my top 100. Then John's going to go. He's going to explain everything that's wrong. And then I'm going to explain why he's wrong. And then we're going to move on to Beauty and the Beast. And we're going to keep this chugging along for an hour and uh, not waste too much of everybody's time. Um, I do think my internet just slowed down considerably. So I'm going to close some tabs here. But anyway, so Whiplash. Whiplash came out in 2014, put Damien Chazelle on the map. Nobody had any idea who this kid was. Uh, Damien Chazelle, at the time when this came out, I believe was still in his 20s. I'm going to look this up real quick. Um, yeah, he was he was born in 85, so when this came out, he was 29 years old. Makes this movie about a drummer who really badly wants to be one of the greats. And... What I love so much about this movie is, and, and John's going to come out here and he's going to explain everything that's wrong with the music aspects of it. And I'm going to be honest, I don't give a shit. Because to me, this movie is about the harms of ambition and the harms of perfection. And yet, when you truly believe in yourself and that you're destined for that, you can't help but keep flying closer and closer to the sun. And you will do whatever it takes to get there. And it's about a guy who, for all intents and purposes, what do they always say, John? If you can't do, teach, right? Like, that's what they always say. So here's a guy who's now teaching music. He's not, you know, in this huge jazz band. We see him at a later point playing piano. And, you know, it's, oh, it's Terrence Fletcher. That's great. But he's teaching. And there's something in him that just is not complete. And he is an insanely flawed character. And this whole movie is just about the ambition. It's the good versus the evil the entire time. 
Now, I'm going to jump ahead of you so I can kind of like defend myself <laughs> before you even get there. Fletcher is a caricature for sure, but so is Andrew. However, for as much of caricatures as they are, these kinds of rivalries, things, these things happen in these weird, whether it's music, sports, film, like these creative worlds, you're always going to have these teachers who are just like abusive or bosses, whatever you want to say. And then you're gonna have these people who are like, but I don't give a shit. I'm going to find a way to get it done anyway. I know this because I worked through some of that stuff for uh, about two, three years of my life. And it was insane, but it's this ambition and it's this drive. And what my favorite part about this movie is what I love so much about it is how realistically it depicts like when you're as driven and nobody can understand you, how you just shut them out because the only focus is how am I going to achieve my goal? And I love the ending that both of these guys with their egos and everything, both got to give a giant middle finger to each other. And yet ultimately it led to finally you're at my tempo, the whole movie. You're not my tempo, not my, now you're at my tempo. And now they're going to, now they probably just put on the best show that whatever the hell I ever saw after upswinging was a disaster. But anyway, John, you hated this movie. I do. Let's hear it. Okay. So context for why I hate this movie so much. I went to university to become a music educator. This is combining like all of my world into a film. So when this movie came out in 2014, it had a lot of hype about it, obviously. And you know what? Somewhat rightly so. Like Miles Teller and J.K. Simmons are phenomenal in this film. They give exceptional performances in each of these roles. The film is like this overdramatic thing that people tend to flock to that people tend to like and think that liking it makes them more in touch with film mm-hmm. that's okay you know what i can acknowledge the good things about this film i cannot as someone who has studied music like this film i sat there for the like hour 40 run that this movie has angry the entire time is the only emotion i can feel when i watch this movie and a lot of it comes down to the fact that this yes people like fletcher do exist in the music world they are so far and few between they and even just like thinking about it from a logical standpoint fletcher wouldn't have a job dude uh see he's throwing chairs at kids like, this is where I disagree, no though. This man has a job. This is where I disagree because I've had a desk thrown at me. I didn't report anything. I didn't do anything like that. I had a desk fucking thrown at me. <laughs> like, while I was being told to cut a wire. Like, this is what I'm saying. Like, these, like, here's here's my thing. And I understand where you're coming from from a rational sense because there are parts in this movie where I'm like, why isn't anybody going to say anything? Why aren't they going to say anything? It's the same reason why people didn't say anything about Harvey Weinstein for decades. Because the dream that you have to, to, to be what you want to be is right there. And you know you got to suck it up and deal with bullshit, but you also know that you're working with one of the best of all time. And so now you sit there and you say, okay, I'm going to put up with this 
so I can eventually achieve what my dream is. And it goes unreported. That's why. And that's why you see the fear from everybody when J.K. Simmons walks in a room. But they're too scared to even report him because if they do, is that going to ruin their chances of ever succeeding ever? I'm really glad you bring up this idea of Fletcher being like the best of all time. There is nothing in this film that tells us that at all. Well, yeah. In fact, it's one of the major flaws with Fletcher's character. We have no context for why he's revered so much. He is just this, like, we don't see, there's nothing that ever proves he is this phenomenal jazz musician that warrants this type of respect that people give him. And even, like, when we do see him perform later, that's a jazz ballad. Like, I'm a terrible pianist. I can play that. Like, no, probably not as well, because like I said, I'm a terrible pianist, but like, <laughs> it's not, it, it, it's not anything that warrants this type of attitude from, like, we don't see anything about Fletcher that warrants his character being the way he is, the, which makes the re- his character just like I was gonna an say, asshole the entire time. But the reason why he is, not because of his skill but because he gets people to the point in their career they want to be at because they go on to win these competitions and the people who are in his studio band end up getting into whatever it at JVC or whatever they keep talking about. Like they're playing at all these different venues that are the dream for jazz musicians. So he's the person who can get you there. It's the same thing. Like, I keep going back to the Harvey Weinstein thing, but that's just where my mind goes when we're talking about movies. But what was so great about Harvey Weinstein? He didn't write these movies. He didn't direct these movies. He just put the money up for these movies. But he was the one who could get your Oscar. Gwyneth Paltrow won an Oscar for Shakespeare in Love, which I always say she should have. But most people don't believe she should have. Why did she win that Oscar? Because of Harvey Weinstein. Like, And that's where I think this character, like, of Fletcher is coming from Fletcher. Like, I agree with you. We don't see anything that makes Fletcher seem like he's very good. And I think that's where part of his depression and his mental stability is and why he is so ruthless to this people. Because at the end of the day, he's not very good at jazz. And like he even says at one point in the way, anybody can stand up there and move their freaking hand back and forth. Anybody can do that. I, okay. As a music educator, I have to step in here and say, no, not everyone can do that. Conducting is an art unto itself. All right, coach. And like, it is something that needs, what? I said, you're coach Wade. I'm just kidding. Sure. Yeah. Fine. But the, the point is, is like conducting is an art. And if you watch some of the greatest conductors in the world, there's a reason why they're the greatest conductors in the world. Mm -hmm. And yeah, jazz, you don't conduct as much. It's a lot of cueing and everything like that Mm -hmm. and keeping people together. But it's still necessary. It still gets the feel across. Like the conductor is still an important person of an ensemble. Mm-hmm. And him saying, I'm not here to wave my hands around and stuff. It's kind of demeaning to conductors. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think the only, the only note that Fletcher knows is demeaning. Like yeah, Fletcher does not know. And, and see what I like, what I like about this movie though is so Fletcher, first of all, I think J.K. Simmons and and like John's going to disagree with me, but I don't care because I know that I'm also like a little bit more in the majority here than John is because of like Letterboxd reviews and Oscars and IMDb and all that shit. Um, I personally believe that J.K. Simmons gives 
the best supporting performance ever because he's terrifying to me and what makes him terrifying in a way that, you know, I put above a Joe Pesci or a Heath Ledger or something like that is that this is just a person like this isn't, this isn't a serial killer or a mobster or, or, you know, like same reason why we love Timothy Hutton so much in ordinary people, but that's not a freaking supporting role, which is why I put this above that because Timothy Hutton's the lead actor. But anyway, like all of that stuff, he's just a regular person. And yet I, when I saw this movie the first time, I didn't know people like Fletcher yet. And I still loved it. But the more that I got to know people like Fletcher, the more I love this movie because I, I just love that, that he was able to put this in a movie where yes, there's a lot of jazz and there's a lot of music and all that, but realistically, this is a, a ambition first your option. What's your mm-hmm. wall? And your wall is this guy. But I think J.K. Simmons gives the best performance like of any supporting actor ever. I think he's absolutely terrifying. He's absolutely phenomenal. And what I what I love about this movie is he is so soulless the entire time. And then we get to the part where he gets the news about Sean Casey. And all of a sudden he's got emotion. And we're like, ah, shit. Like, this is, this is legit. This is like, okay, you know, like he's coming around. At that same practice, he's screaming at people, yelling at people, doing whatever. And then we find out that him saying it was a car accident was bullshit because he actually hanged himself. And it's like, man, everything that we thought that we could start to like about this guy has again gone out the window. He didn't even tell them the truth about it was a it was a car accident. And why is he crying? Is it because he's actually upset Sean Casey died? Or is he upset that Sean Casey might have been led to this place by where he was? Who the hell knows? But I, I like that we at least get that aspect. And then it just turns around and he's just a total dick again three seconds later. See, I really like that you brought up that scene because I think this this is such a total farce from Fletcher in this scene. I don't think Fletcher gives a fuck. Mm-hmm. I because and I was thinking about it while watching the film. This feels so out of character for Fletcher. The, like he's not this type of emotional guy. I think he's putting on a show because it's what he's supposed to do mm-hmm. in this situation. I don't think he cares. Mm-hmm. You and, might be and right. The, and and if you think about it, it's kind of like it, it. it's very reminiscent of the first time he's talking to Andrew mm-hmm. in the hallway where he's saying, you know, if it, it, it's OK, just just try to hit the beat. You know, we'll just do this, you know, whatever. It's all good. And like Andrew, he's 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 letting their guard down yeah. so then he can turn around. And now you can't get at him because you feel bad for him in some way or you feel like, oh, he'll be nice to me eventually. That's why that's where it lets your guard down. And like, it's a part of manipulation for sure. Mm-hmm, definitely. And like, it just feels to me that this scene one on this rewatch, it felt like this scene was more to show off JK Simmons acting range mm-hmm. than it was to enhance the character at all. Mm-hmm. Because it's completely forgotten. Like, yes, we get back, we get to the, I, I guess we call it the climax. And it's not really the climax, I guess, but we get to the point where like the lawsuit's coming up and like, yeah, the climax is fired right. and everything. But, and like Sean Casey becomes relevant again. Mm-hmm. But at that point, all of a sudden it's like, there's no remorse in Fletcher. And you can tell there's no remorse in Fletcher. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's like, that's what's supposed to happen. Fletcher isn't supposed to have remorse. He is a truly awful human being. And this scene in the middle of this movie just comes out of nowhere. And it just feels so totally different than everything else. Well, 
and and but I think I think what goes to your point, I think it's a good point, um, which actually like I agree with here, and I think it it kind of changes my perspective on that. But I I think you're right that he's putting on a show there because then it remi- like there's three moments in this movie where Fletcher's not a dick. One mm-hmm. when he's talking to Neiman in the hallway. Two when he is um, when he's talking about Sean Casey. And then number three is at the end when he's talking to Neiman and he's like, you know, I, this, that, whatever, you know, but there's no two words more harmful in the English language than good job. And I just wanted to drive mm-hmm. people there, blah, blah, blah. Why don't you come play in my band? Every single one of those has a lie going on in it or an ulterior motive. So I think you're right. I think he's just putting on a show there because by the time we actually get, when we get to the end, we know it's an ulterior motive that he just wants to get Neiman out there. Let, it, let him let us get his guard down. But that's what this is all about is Fletcher lets them let the lets them get their guard down. It's the same thing as when he kicks Mets mm-hmm. out of the band instead yeah. of Erickson because Mets doesn't know that he's out of tune. And it's like, that's worse. So you're out. And if you're going to cry about it, you don't know, blah, blah, blah. Like, I don't need you. Erickson, it was actually you. Now, Erickson, you can have your guard down a little bit and I'm going to rip you apart at a later time because that's just what he does. Yeah, I, I don't know. Like. It's just there's so many things about this character of Fletcher where I understand where he's coming from. I understand what he's sculpted on, but we know he's an exaggeration. And like you said, he's a character. And there are some things that happen that make no sense. Like even the actual climax of this film, when we when we do get the performance at the Lincoln Center, there is no way someone of flesh like Fletcher, this egomaniac, would ever. Uh, do anything that could tarnish his own reputation like that. Well, here's here's what my thinking is with that scene is his reputation's already gone. He's doing this sure. little like pish posh bullshit at this point and oh, we might I mean, be able to help you. But his reputation is gone. I don't you can't even say his reputation's gone cuz he's performing at the bloody Lincoln Center. Like this yeah, is but the he's, pinnacle he's... of performance for jazz, right? Like if his reputation's gone, he's not going to be here in the first place. So but is that it, at the Lincoln Center or is that the other yeah, thing? Yeah, it was that... at the link. It was performed at the Lincoln Center. Gotcha. Well, all all I'm saying is like, it's it's almost like the uh, the weirdness when Kevin Spacey decided that he was going to randomly like make that like video a couple years back where he like yeah. acted like he was Frank Underwood again and like punched the table, like thinking that was just going to bring him back. Like, yeah. even though he might be playing at the Lincoln Center, whatever, he is he has taken a step down from where he was. And it's almost like, yes, his ego is as massive as it is, like you're saying, but if the drummer is that horrific, he can point, okay, good. Now Neiman's career is totally over because of that one thing. And it's almost like that's more important to him than what is good. Cause his reputation's already what it is. So the other thing like coming from a music aspect to this though, is even if Neiman is just coming in to a performance cold as a drummer because you think he's a good enough drummer. The rest of this ensemble would have practiced with each other, which means they were practicing without a drum. Well, I think that they were practicing. Didn't they say they were practicing with a drummer, but the drummer just wasn't up to snuff? Uh, probably. Sounds like that's that's what that. Simmons, that's what Fletcher says to him. He says, you know, the drummer's just not cutting. He goes, what about Connolly? Ah, uh, he's in pre-med. What about Tanner? Uh, Tanner's doing what? Like, he asks about all that because... Mm. Fletcher's looking for a replacement. My thinking is there was never a, a an OG. Just kick that guy out. We don't need that guy. Yeah. And let's just Probably. come here and ruin Neiman. Probably. I mean, it's, it seems 
it's Fletcher's MO, really, right? Uh, He's a vengeful asshole. <laughs> the worst thing about Fletcher, I find, and like this was a, again, I can't give this movie props for some things. And to see one of the best parts about the writing of this film is to seeing how Fletcher's behavior encourages that type of behavior in the other members of the band. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So we see it in Tanner, and then we and then we eventually see it in Neiman too, right? And we get to this point where these people think that they're special because they're in this band and that they can do whatever they want. They can act however they want. They can shit all over people mm-hmm. just because they're the ones in the lead chair. Yeah. That's yeah. accurate. I, I yeah. can't deny how accurate that is. Well, and yeah, I mean, that's the whole thing too of though, like the whole misery loves company. Fletcher's a miserable guy and he's mm-hmm. making everybody else miserable at this thing that they're supposed to love. Like that yeah. was always, I I always say this, but like my least favorite part about working in film was that all the people who I worked for or like with in some way, not all of them, but most of them, they all just like hated working in film. Mm-hmm. And then they would do this and they would complain about how awful it was to work in film. And they wanted you to hate it just as much as they did. And yeah. that's why I just kept feeling like you're beaten down, beaten down, beaten down, beaten down. And because Fletcher wasn't able to have this like super wonderful life as a jazz pianist or whatever he wanted to be. It's like nobody else is ever allowed to have that either. Now you yeah. might find that, but even if you hit your pinnacle, even if you get to where you want to get and you get to that first chair and whatever band and blah, 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 you're still going to be the whole time. Now you're just so stressed and everything that it's not going to make a difference. I mean, what Neiman puts himself through in this movie is amazing and i love it because again it's all the ambition like i'm all about this and i'm all about the exact you know with the blood and and the and the playing the drums and all that stuff like i'm all about that kind of stuff so or not let's well let's talk about the bleeding in the hands if a skilled drummer someone who's been drumming long enough and is skilled enough to get into the Schaefer institute one of the most prestigious music schools in all of america the only way your hands are bleeding from drumming is if you are drumming incorrectly. Okay. Well, here, here's this. This is a movie, and that's <laughs> a visual a cue. That's I a get visual, it. That's a nitpick out of like, control. But that's like it, saying, oh, when you get shot, your 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 blood doesn't spurt that way. It's it's le- like we all know right. it's an exaggeration. But, sure, but when we're talking about the other musical aspects of this movie. It just feels like no research was put into this movie at all to make it so that any of the musical things they're saying make any sense. This, this is, is a vision. This, this is it's my band sand time. <laughs> that's a that's a that that is like the ultimate nitpick for no, that is literally but, just the point of this is to show the ambition. That would be the same thing if I made a movie about a runner. I, get I ran my whole life. I would make a movie about a guy with a freaking with Oshkosh Slaughter and he'd have blisters on the bottom of his seat, plantar fasciitis, and he'd be trying to run through it all. And I'd be showing the blood and I'd be showing the blisters yeah. and peeling off and, the skin off your toes. And but that doesn't mean fine. it's happening. That's <laughs> fine. But there are things in this movie that from a musician standpoint, I can't forgive. And it's like, there's a there's the point where Neiman's watching like the home video of himself on a drum kit. And he says, look at my paradiddle. Doesn't play a paradiddle. There, and I think the biggest thing for me, though, is Fletcher brings out Caravan. He says, we're going to play this at 3.30. They never play this piece at 3.30. Mm-hmm. Caravan's tempo marking is 104. 
So even at double time, 208. Nowhere close to 330. And like these are little things that if you do research into music, you can easily figure out. And it's something that I feel like should have been caught on the writing room floor. Mm -hmm. Right? But there is one thing that is even more egregious than all of this. During the first performance, as the band's performing, we get the close-up shot, we see Neiman drumming, and there's the lead trumpet player beside him playing trumpet. And you can clearly hear the trumpet in the piece they're playing. There is a wide-angle shot during the middle of this piece. Not a single trumpet player is playing. Yeah, I mean, I then saw it that. Cuts back, and it's yeah. just, and it cuts back, and then the trumpet player is playing again. The sound never stopped, but there, and it's just like these little things, and it's like that's an editing mistake. It is an editing mistake. But Don't other that, movies have editing mistakes, John. Lots, <laughs> all of them. Every single one of I them. I know, but like this was just one that was so. I never, never, when watching a movie for this podcast see something and think, wait a minute, and rewind to make sure I saw that. I had to at this point because it was just like, this is something so simple, this shouldn't have happened. Mm -hmm. Hey, I get it. But I will say this, when we get to American Beauty, which is my number two movie, yeah. there's a point where Lester Burnham throws a pillow and it falls on the ground. Two shots later, it's on the chair behind him. So just please don't <laughs> knock American Beauty for okay. that moment, okay? Oh, because okay. that happens. But again, like, <laughs> This is just, this, this is the musician in me. This is someone who has spent time in this world. And when you get a movie that is about a large portion of your life mm -hmm. and it does these type of things, it, it just doesn't feel like it's well, doing justice to it. And, and, and I, I, I get, get it. I get that's where yeah. my opinion of this movie is coming from. And I understand why people enjoy this movie. But I, I get that too, because like, you know, even though I've, I've never been a jockey, but I, you know, running your whole yeah. life, like I ran for 12, 13 years competitively. And you watch a movie that involves running of any kind, it's all bullshit. Like it's mm -hmm. all, like it's all, like you can't watch freaking Without Limits or Prefontaine or, but then it goes to Seabiscuit or like Secretariat. Like you start to notice these things where you're yeah. like, that's not going to happen. Like get out of here with this nonsense. Like, and it starts to ruin racing movies from that perspective. So mm -hmm. I understand where you're coming from with that, because I think it's in without limits or something like that. Like there's somebody who's like two minutes slower than him, who's somehow running on the same straightaway at the end of the, at the end of the, the race as him. And it's like, no, that person wouldn't even be close. <laughs> he would have lapped that person yeah. like maybe twice. Like, like it's ridiculous, not two minutes, but you know, it's, it's, something so i just i totally totally understand where you're coming from with those but i do think that there's a difference between okay your 330 thing that to me that sounds like a lazy thing the yeah. trumpet thing that is just hey we needed a freaking filler shot i know, and I know we didn't have one of them playing a trumpet i know but like like i said there are really good things i there are a couple of scenes that i really enjoy i really enjoy how after Neiman gets into into the band, he he gets the confidence to ask out the girl, right? Mm -hmm. That's good. It's good to see that type of character develop in the character. I love the dinner scene in this movie. Yeah, the dinner scene's great. The it's fantastic. Because it's Division 3. It's exactly Here's four how, words you'll never hear. <laughs> <laughs> it's exactly how musicians feel whenever mm. they talk to anyone, right? I mean, I know a lot of, I went to music school. I know a lot of musicians. I know a lot of professional musicians. I know people who 
had these conversations of, well, what are you going to do with that, right? Mm-hmm. I, mean, I, I was a film student, dude. For I get Russian it. literature and music education. Everyone asks me what I'm going to do with that. Yeah. But, and to have that, the football player there, and like everyone be hyped up about him. And then for Andrew just to say, it's Division Three. It's yeah. like, yes, that is because Andrew's there talking about how he just got into the most prestigious jazz band in the United States. And everyone's ignoring it. And everyone's yeah. hyping up how, uh, you know, this guy's in Division Three football. Well, and here's here's my thing. That's what I. That's why I connect with this movie so much, and that's mm-hmm. why it's so high up. It's kind of like when we talked about Inside Lewin Davis. I could just feel yeah. Lewin Davis's pain. Why I love this movie so much is I ran cross country. I went to school for film. All you ever heard was, like, every time I'd I'd go, I'd win a race. And our football team would win by 25 over a team that had like, you know, two kids, maybe over 150 yeah. pounds. Like, what are we doing? And that's all anybody would talk about. I mean, I went Randy one and, and, and it didn't matter to anybody in the town. And honestly, to me now, I get it. Like I'm 30. I understand why it didn't matter to anybody. You get that ego though, when you're younger, cause that's all you have. But it's so funny because what this movie is about is it's about pursuing perfection and wanting to be one of the greats when no one gives a shit if you're going to do it or not you're not mm-hmm. trying to be tom brady if you were going out there to try to be tom brady or or uh what matt uh sundin would that be easier for you like somebody like sundin wayne gretzky something like that um but if you're trying to go out and you're trying to be that that's different because yeah. Every, that's going to bring you money. That's going to bring you fame. That's going to bring you fortune. That's going to bring you everything. This movie is about something that's not going to bring him anything except knowing that he's the one of the greatest of all time. And it's so important to him that he'll sit down with a girl that he really likes and just insult her to her face because she's going nowhere and he's going to be one of the greats. He doesn't want to be the great. He doesn't want to be good. He wants to be one of the greats. He doesn't want to be great. He wants to be one of the greats. Like that scene to me is just phenomenal. And it's so indicative of like these people who are driven by this and how people who aren't as driven or don't under, like they just don't understand it. Why would anybody care as much as Neiman does about Mm -hmm. this thing that ultimately if you don't do it, no one cares. It's the same reason why people keep writing books and keep writing movies and keep directing even when they make nothing but crap to start because they're going to find a freaking way. Yeah, I, I, I agree. Like there, like I said, there are good aspects of this film and it's the personal things that make it so that I can't enjoy this film. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think there's another thing to look at with Neiman and Fletcher's relationship and how Neiman parrots Fletcher a lot through this mm-hmm. film when he's talking to other people. And there's no better example than this than the Joe Jones analogy. Yeah. Because yeah. Joe Jones never threw a symbol at Charlie mm-hmm. Parker. Mm-hmm. That didn't happen. And he but just, Neiman keeps, just he parrots him. Yeah. He, he parrots him. He he takes Fletcher's word for him because he has this reverence for him and this respect for him. And I, I it's good seeing that respect turn to fear, turn to hatred in the mm-hmm. film. Like it's good seeing that evolution. Also, I have a question. Yeah. Don't you have to be 25 to rent a car? Uh yes, but you know, whatever. I've rented a car younger, actually. I rented a car at 21. Oh, okay. I, I just 20, wanted to make sure. I wasn't 25, sure. I knew that. I knew that 25 was is what it has to be for, like, not extra money being added on. Like, you can okay. be 21 and rent a car, but it's going to cost you a shit ton more. Okay. 
Yeah. Cool. Good to know. Also, I'm, I was wondering John, about that scene. Well, John, yeah. here's my question to you. If you got hit by a Mack truck, you think you're getting up and running? No. No, absolutely yeah. not. But exactly. I mean, I, so that's I, the more important thing. In fact, there, there is a part of me that thinks he might have died there. Just yeah. saying. Which yeah. would explain why Fletcher would tarnish his own reputation and have Neiman play and then Neiman succeeds. There's a possibility he's dead. Yeah. I love that you've now gone down that rabbit hole. So there you go. Maybe if you can convince yourself he's dead there, this is a four-star movie for you. I don't think so. The, the, the music thing still gets me every time. All right. Well, let's move on to something that makes you happy. But first, what since you didn't watch anything, what do you got? Is like, what are you looking forward to movie-wise? What do you got? Anything? Today, today's Cinema Day, $3 mm. movie tickets, and Jaws is playing in IMAX. So I'm pretty excited to see that later today. That's awesome. Yeah, man, we watched Jaws earlier on this podcast. Love me some Jaws. Uh, would love to see that in theaters. I saw Raiders of the Lost Ark in theaters, but that was like the only nice. like um, Spielberg that I've seen, yeah. like the classic. The classic you know. Spielberg, yeah. yeah. But I do also want to throw out, I, I did watch The Rings of Power this week because, mm. I mean, there, there was new Lord of the Rings to indulge in. And um, with a billion dollar price tag, you expect it. But that is a absolutely beautiful show. That is... From a cinematic standpoint, it look it feels like a movie the entire mm-hmm. time. And I'm really excited to see where it goes. I know a lot of people are complaining that it kind of like meanders and it doesn't do anything. I'm totally Sorry, fine with right. that because I watched Sodom Tango. Yeah. I haven't watched it yet, but I always think it's funny when people complain that like the first couple episodes of a show don't go anywhere. It's like, well, yeah, that's what that's why that's why movies are better than TV, in my opinion, because yeah. A movie's two hours long. It's supposed to go somewhere in the first half hour. When you have a 10-episode first season that's going to be part of like a seven-season thing, yeah, of course you're not going to really know what's going on in the first two episodes. It's going to meander because they got to set everything up. I feel people forget about the time of like 24-episode seasons. Yeah, they do. And how terrible TV was at that time because there was just so much film. And how Lost literally changed that because Lost was like, we're not doing 24 now. Yeah, I can see it. Like, we're not going to do 24 episode things anymore. We're doing 13 because we are yeah. 18, whatever they decided on, because we can't do it anymore. And they did. And that changed the landscape of yeah. of even network TV. Because, I mean, look at Breaking Bad. Breaking Bad was 13 episodes mm-hmm. the whole time. Mad Men. Like, that was a big deal. So, yeah, yeah. people forget that kind of stuff. What anyway. about you, Phil? What was this one movie you watched this week? I watched The Magnificent One, also known as Les Magnifiques. Uh, it's, it's um, oh God, what, I gotta like actually click on it because I'm not gonna pronounce anybody's names right. It's a Philippe de Braca movie and it's got John Paul Belmondo who's from uh, Breathless and and <laughs> the man from Rio and all that stuff. Um, it's so good. It's it's really funny. So it's, it's uh, at first, so I forgot what the premise of the movie was and it's like a Pulp Fiction writer, you know, writes him pretends that he is the hero of his story and i forgot that was the premise because when i sat down and watched it the first 15 minutes they don't show you the writer at all and it's ridiculous and it's amazing and it's just this over-the-top action nonsense and i loved every second of it and then i was like oh crap now they're showing the writer stuff and i'm like i don't know how i feel about that but once they got into the swing with the writer stuff i was like all right this is great but the opening 15 minutes might be some of the best 15 minutes i've ever seen they're so funny they're so over the top it's just like it's just pulling it's deconstructing like the spy genre and like the like it's just you can't you don't think it's going to get any more absurd and it does but to me it's like it does it better than like a pink panther way or something like that because it's doing it in a way where you're like you know what this isn't that out of the realm for what james bond would have been doing but uh if you haven't seen this movie it's a little bit harder to find but 
check out um the man from rio or that man from rio mm-hmm. whatever it is i don't i don't actually know which one it is but that's a good one that's a little bit more serious and it's a really entertaining movie um but yeah anyway that's what i got hi hey john we're talking about beauty and the beast i've already done this on a podcast so you go yeah. first you have i feel like i did too because i was so up in the comment section for that podcast mm-hmm. uh but i beauty and the beast it's just on another level when it comes to the Disney classics for me, just Disney in general for me. Uh, it's my highest rated Disney movie by a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's some personal connection to Beauty and the Beast. Uh, Beauty and the Beast was the first stage musical I was ever in. And since then, I, I love it. If you look through my diary on Letterboxd, I have watched Beauty and the Beast more than any other movie since we have started this podcast. I have. That's funny. I'm pretty sure I've watched it six or seven times since we started this podcast. Gotcha. I love this movie. This is a movie where it's like, if I'm having a bad day, I'm going to watch Beauty and the Beast. If I just like, it doesn't matter. If I'm super happy, I'm going to watch Beauty and the Beast. Beauty and the Beast is just this movie to me that resembles this part of my childhood that I love very much. And as someone who's now more into film and analyzes film, it's so such a beautiful film. The story... It's a story old as time. And yeah. every bit of it is just presented in a way where it's so engaging. The characters are phenomenal. The acting is phenomenal. Alan Menken's music, not just the songs he wrote, but also oh, the yeah. score he produced. Oh, absolutely yeah. incredible. And the animation for for 1991, this animation was just above and beyond what anyone ever expected. The opening sequence with the, the stained glass telling the story, absolutely gorgeous. Mm-hmm. And then you get like the ballroom and like the bit of like computer generated animation there and everything. It's so good. It's no wonder this was the first animated film nominated for Best Picture. Mm-hmm. It's just incredible, top to bottom. There, there are so many things I can talk about in this movie about why I love it, but it's just overall, it just always makes me feel good whenever I watch Beauty and the Beast. Yeah, there's something, you know, it's funny because like when I was growing up, like I remember being like Lion King, Lion King, Lion King. Mm -hmm. Aladdin for some reason always gave me a headache. So I never, like I associate Aladdin the movie with headaches. It's the weirdest thing in the world, but I literally do. Great Mouse Detective was one of my all-time favorites. I love the Goofy movie. Like, I, Toy Story obviously came out when we were, what, three years old. I like The Hunchback of Notre Dame, which, by the way, still the most underrated Disney movie of all time. And I have to throw that out there whenever I can because people mm-hmm. really do not understand how yeah. underrated that movie is. It is so freaking amazing. But anyway, um, but at the end of the day, it was like Beauty and the Beast is a princess movie. Like, that's like a movie my mm-hmm. sister's going to go watch and whatever and Cinderella and all that. I would go with like Robin Hood and whatever. I mean, we were we were all into the gender stereotypes. Like, we – I yep. loved my action movies and detective movies and my sister loved her princess movies. Although both of us really liked Robin Hood. So that was like kind of like one of our connections. There's a princess in Robin Hood. It's fine. There is, but it's not – you know, it's not like the, the Cinderella Sleeping Beauty, yeah. Beauty and the Beast thing. So it was, it's funny because like, as you're growing, as you're growing up, you watch these movies and then you hit a point where it's like, I'm not going to watch these anymore. Like I'm done. I'm not, I'm done with Disney animation. Now we all got lucky because we had Pixar. So we'd go watch Pixar and that made it feel like it was more mature. We're adults. We're Mm -hmm. watching, we're watching Ratatouille. We're watching a rat. So, so we're better than everybody. We don't need to go watch Beauty and the Beast. And I remember I went, um, 
I went with a bunch of my friends to Disney for a whole week. Um, and, and we went to Disney world for a whole week, my sophomore year of college. Mm-hmm. And because we went in January, we went over winter break. We did everything. So, I mean, we literally would walk on tower of terror, walk off, get right back on, walk off, walk right back. Like we did it like eight times in a row before there was a line that was 10 minutes long. And we said, okay, let's go somewhere else. Like it was that yeah. ridiculous. So we went for a whole week. We were pounding through everything. We did all the mini golf courses. We did all the, everything. And finally one night we said, let's just go to the movies and see something. But it was like, but we want to stay in the mindset of Disney. Yeah. So the only Disney movie that was playing, cause like, you know, Disney will still play some of their movies even when they're not out or being re-released or whatever. The only one that was playing was beauty and the beast. And we were like, fine, we're going to go see beauty and the beast. And I remember like, we got so judged on that trip. Cause it was like four 20 year old dudes just at Disney, just the four of them. For some reason that was weird in 2010 or 2011, 2012, whatever it is nowadays. That's not weird. Like nobody's questioning yeah. that. But back then people were like, why are you guys here? I don't get it. Why aren't you there? Like, blah, blah, blah. Like, okay. I go, what Panama city beach. Like, I don't need to do that. So we went and saw beauty and the beast. And I remember sitting there and being like, Holy shit. This is better than I remember this movie being. And like, yeah. I'm sitting there and I'm like looking around and I'm like, all right, like it's an emotional movie. The music's fantastic. It makes you feel like a child, but then it's also got like those real themes and everything else going on in it. And I was like, man, this is so much better than I ever thought or remembered or anything. Now I never, of course, like, you know, it wasn't like one of those movies, like you go see like a rival or something and all the boys yeah. come walking out with like their big biceps. And it's like, Hey, what'd you think of that movie? Nobody came walking out of beauty and the beast being like, wow, what'd you think of beauty and the beast? You know, we just kind of like walked out and it was kind of like one of those, like uh unsaid, like, yeah, we just did that. But yeah. it really just resonated with me at that time. And I was like, man, I got to watch this again. And I watched it again, like a month later just by myself. And I was like, this, this is the best Disney movie. It, it really like just pure Disney cut out Pixar. Mm-hmm. This is, and for you, it's you know, the best of both worlds, but yeah. this mm-hmm. is the best Disney movie because of everything it accomplishes because of what it's, it's overall purpose. This, like this storybook feel with the princess and the beast, but it's for everybody. It's Mm -hmm. for everybody. And I think that's the best part about this movie. It's not just for boys or girls. Like it's for adults. It's for everyone. There's something in this. Gaston is one of the best villains ever. I don't even care. Like, um, you know, whether animation, movie, whatever. He's one of the best villains ever. He's amazing. The Beast is such a complicated character. Belle, Maurice, um, Monsieur Dark is terrifying. LeFou is a great sidekick. All of the, you know, Cogsworth, Mrs. Potts, Chip, Lumiere, like they're all so good. Everything yeah. is so well defined in this movie. And yet it has that magic to it that some of the, the Disney movies that were coming before this just didn't have. Now, granted, mm-hmm. we had Great Mouse Detective into Little Mermaid into this cut out, you know, Brave Little Toaster and whatever else is in there. But this was this was why the Renaissance happened was Little Mermaid and Beauty and the Beast. But Little yeah. Mermaid still even though it's got all the great songs, it doesn't have the depth that this movie has. This movie has a depth that was just unheard of for animated movies at this point. Yeah. And that's really what it comes down to is it it's built in a way where these characters are so appealing that every person can kind of latch on to a different character. And like you were saying with little mermaid, right? It has the songs, but those characters, I mean, the side characters in Little Mermaid, you don't really latch on to it all. They they're they're there and they have their personalities, but there's there's nothing big about them. Whereas other than Sebastian, the beast, there's not much. Yeah, and I mean 
possibly a racial stereotype, but that's beyond the point. But Beauty and the Beast, on the other hand, you have this wide cast of characters. They're all so unique. And they all have their own special qualities to them that you can connect with. Like, the straight and narrow kid that I was growing up always connected with Cogsworth. Mm -hmm. You know, Cogsworth was just a character that resonated with me. But... I also like love Lumiere as this like total sleaze bag mm-hmm. guy, just like flirting with everything with with or without legs. Yeah. Uh, and then you have Gaston, like you said, one of the absolute greatest Disney villains or just villains in general of all time. This is a character who is egotistical, is narcissistic. Mm-hmm. believes he deserves everything he has women falling over for him doesn't matter he just wants bell and mm-hmm. then at the end of this movie he's told hey there's this like terrifying creature living in a castle of course he's gonna like get a bomb together to kill it it's not because of bell because that's what he's supposed to do is this mm-hmm. like big macho hunter of this town in any situation where we don't know beast gaston's the good guy well, and that's what I was going to say. It's funny because Gaston is the villain because he's the villain. If you really think about what Gaston does in this movie, yeah, he's a creep. He's really going after Belle here. Like, yeah, that's, you know, he's, he's, he's on the prowl. He's trying to, he's trying to get her to marry him without re- like, just like, you should be entitled to this. But if you really think about what Gaston does in this movie, it doesn't harm anybody. Doesn't hurt anybody. Doesn't kill anybody. I mean, he does more like get Maurice locked up in an insane. Well, asylum, he's, but... he's trying to get at Maurice to get bell. So again, yeah, like yeah. the manipulation factor is there for sure. But like, I guess like, if you're really thinking about like what makes him a villain, it's that his pursuit of bell and we know bell doesn't want him. But when you think about other villains, like judge Frollo from, uh, from hunchback, which mm-hmm. scar from the lion King, um, Ursula from The Little Mermaid, Radigan from The Great Mouse Detective, Jafar from Aladdin. These are the movies that were coming out around this. Those are real legitimate villains that have no redeeming qualities. Whereas Gaston, realistically, if Belle never walked through that town, Gaston's actually the protector of the village. And most of the village does look at him as the protector. When he's going after Beast, like you said, if we don't know Beast, Gaston's not a bad guy. He's going to protect the village. It's the same thing as the Frankenstein monster when the mob is going yep. after Frankenstein. Like that's what it's all about. And I just think that that dynamic is so good. But the way that the character of Gaston is presented, just so down in the dumps because he can't get Bell. But now he's going to find a way. He's going to find a way. Like, I don't know, man. Like that, that type of depth is what works in this one. And we see this though as the Disney movies start to move forward from this one, like you were saying with the side characters, with the villains, you know, you have Zazu, Rafiki, you have, you have Abu, you have, um, I'm just trying to think of the one, Jasmine. Like you have these characters in the next couple movies, Esmeralda and Clopin or whatever his name. I don't know how you actually say his name, but all of those people as you're going through are so much more memorable than what you were getting in movies like the black cauldron and, 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 uh, and the rescuers and Oliver and company and things like that, that were coming out prior to all this. I think beauty and the beast really changed that. And it made the the villains more dynamic, even though they were still very much villains. 
it was making them so much more dynamic than what we were getting prior to this. Well, that's the big thing. Like, if we look at how Disney evolved after this, like, even, like, The Lion King with Scar, right? Scar is a character who, yes, he's nefarious, he's doing evil things, but he's also, like, helping these hyenas that were kind of just banished from the kingdom, mm-hmm. right? Like, mm-hmm. there, there are redeeming qualities if you look deep enough in these Disney villains moving forward. And, yeah, it starts with Beauty and the Beast. And it starts with this simple tale, right? Like, it, it's just this love story. Uh, and like, I mean, there are the there are the people who will say, "Oh, it's Stockholm syndrome" or whatever. But and I mean, don't think about the timeline in this movie because it, it really doesn't work. Yeah, <laughs> I have been, I I spent a lot of time this week trying to figure out how long the time frame of this movie mm-hmm. was. I can't do it. Sure. Because, but you know what? That's okay. I am willing to have my suspension of disbelief for that because there is literally an enchanted castle with like mm-hmm. singing cutlery I, i'm okay mm-hmm. but <laughs> it's it's the spectacle of the film it's the way that these characters interact with each other it's the that, that hope there is so much hope in this film outside of the love plot that mm-hmm. it, it just draws you in well what what works with this one too is every character has something at stake mm-hmm. in this movie based around the main storyline with the love plot. That's not the key. Like if you think about like the little mermaid, it doesn't really matter if Ariel and Eric get together. Like it really doesn't affect anybody except for Ariel, Eric and Ursula, like the underwater, like, yeah, it Ursula starts to bring people. I'm going to turn Triton into a guppy or whatever. Like that type of stuff starts to happen, but they're not as much like everybody in that castle was punished for the beast. And now they all have their chance of becoming unpunished. But the only way to become unpunished is for the beast to find success. So they're all being driven by this as well, which is good. Yeah. And I mean, punished by the beast. What? Let's talk about Prince Adam here for a second. Because A, like Bell. A, you know his name. name. That's good. Yeah. Because it's not actually mentioned at all. Uh, but I do God. know that. Um, but also, based on context clues in this film, Lumiere in... Be our guest states that they have been this way for 10 years. Mm-hmm. The curse states that Adam needs to find love before his 21st birthday. Mm-hmm. This enchantress put this curse <laughs> on this castle because of an 11 year old. Yeah. 10 or 10, arguably yeah. a 10 year old. Arguably a 10 year old. Brutal. Just brutal yeah. is all I'm saying. Well, that's that's the beauty of like these like um uh like grim fairy tales or yeah. just regular fairy tales or like even when you look at like a George R. R. Martin or like anything in the fantasy realm, it's always like people that are so much younger. But like that's because back in the day, like people were deciding yeah. things a lot younger because they were dying at like 30, 35 rather than yeah. living to be like 80. So being 11, 12 years old, if you were a prick, like they kind of wanted to like like they didn't like you because you weren't gonna get much better and you only had like 15 more years to live. So it is funny, like that type of timeline and like all of that stuff that goes into it. But yeah, I mean, you were talking about the opening earlier. I think this is the best opening of mm-hmm. a Disney movie. I, I, I love this opening. I love the mosaic thing and like the tiles and the stained glass and like whatever's going on there. And then it leads right into Belle with this song. 
Um, and like, that's the animation now that we're going to get for the rest of the movie. Yeah. Like, I really love that. Um, and it, it creates this character of the Enchantress without ever really having to like waste our time with the Enchantress. Mm -hmm. And I, I'm all about that. We don't need to have more time than what we spend with the Enchantress, which is none, but just to yeah. let it be known that the beast did something wrong. Um, and now he must find a way. Uh, I also love the part though, because based on how it's described at the beginning of the movie, it makes it seem like, well, if the beast learns to love someone else, the curse is over. And then that happens and Belle leaves and Lumiere is like, well, that should break the spell. And then it's like, well, actually, no, she has to love him in return. And I'm like, ah, there you go, movie, because you were about to really like screw yeah. yourselves with a plot hole there. But they didn't. It was they they learned from that scene where the trumpet wasn't being played. And exactly. they said, screw from it. We need to throw that line in. Yeah, they just knew from 23 years in the future, right? <laughs> yeah, they, they went. Uh, but let's talk about Belle because mm. Belle is, in my opinion, the most compelling Disney princess ever written because she she fits these stereotypical princess tropes, but also has this depth to the character mm. where she's just outcast in her town. She's weird because she reads. Mm -hmm. How dare she read? Mm -hmm. and, and you know she has the kooky father and everything, and so she's kind of ostracized. We even see that like. Bella and Maurice live on the outskirts of town, right? They don't live in town with everyone else. They're not mingling all the time. She's weird. She's she's kooky. Mm -hmm. But I think that's what's so endearing about Belle. And, and, and it really gives that whole point where I love that in the song Belle, she literally explains like the plot of the movie during the bridge of that song where she's singing about, you know, Prince Charming and stuff and not knowing it's going to be him till chapter three and everything. Mm -hmm. that, that's the plot of the movie. The yeah, entire yeah. plot of the movie spoiled in the first 10 minutes of this, mm -hmm. but it, it's okay because it, it makes it so wonderful because you have this character in Belle who's selfless, willing to sacrifice herself so her father can escape and be fine. Mm -hmm. She's like, whatever, I'll throw myself in prison. Dad who, you know, got lost on his way to the invention fair, you just go out there and live in the wild still by yourself. You don't need help at all. And then she's so stubborn that she won't come down for dinner. She's like, mm -hmm. nah, I'm good. But then she's so, she has this, such an endearing quality that the entire castle falls in love with her. It, mm -hmm. it, it, it's, it's just such a well-written character who's self-confident, who doesn't need a man. Yeah. Right. She doesn't need yeah. that protection that we see from it, in a lot of these like princess movies. The man is for is saving the princess, right? Mm -hmm. Um, even the ones well, after this, Aladdin saves Jasmine from Jafar, right? But that's and, see, th this is what I think is interesting. Sorry to interrupt you on that, but like with Aladdin saving Jasmine, that is Aladdin's movie. If you look yes. at the ones where it's actually like the princesses movie, Cinderella, Sleeping Beauty, um, Snow White, even mm. every one of them needs to be rescued in some way. Yeah. Belle does not. And I agree with you. That was like, people don't talk about that all that much of how like different and defining that was to have happened because oh, princess movies like blah, blah. But then we get Mulan like six years later, seven years later, whatever it was, which is kind of the same thing. She doesn't need to be saved. And I think like that was a trend that Disney started early. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it kind of gets overlooked. And it really did start with Beauty and the Beast because 
you know, all of these movies are about, oh, I got to find Prince Charming. She doesn't really care if she finds Prince Charming. Like, she's totally content with what her life is. She just wants to be out of the provincial life. You know, she wants to go somewhere else and explore and see things. But that doesn't mean she needs Gaston to take her to do this. You know what I mean? And that's something that was happening in the earlier movies. Ariel can't become, you know, what she wants to be without Eric and yeah. blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And like that's what's so great about Beauty and the Beast is that despite the like despite the fact that the love does kind of take like the central focus of the film as we get into the back half of it it's still not the primary driver of this film and mm -hmm. the love kind of feels incidental in the film rather than forced upon like these princes force themselves yeah it's, there's something there that wasn't there before it just happened yeah exactly and like i i love the depiction of beast throughout the film because he starts he's on all fours Mm -hmm. when we first see him with Maurice and everything and he's hunched over all the time and as we progress through the film as he interacts with Belle more he, he realizes his humanity again and he starts standing more upright it, it, it's just a fascinating approach to a, a visual evolution of a character that the medium of animation allows you to explore mm -hmm. yeah that's a good point I mean yeah because we see him the first time they eat he's just you know eating out of the plate and then he starts picking up the spoon it's like He's not an actual animal. Like he does mm. have those human traits, but if it's been 10 years, he's lost them. It hasn't mattered. He hasn't needed to. He's just been moping and, you know, worrying about whatever. Um, yeah, I, I, I really, I, I really like that as well. Like with, with the beast character, because it's something that a lot of the other movies don't really need to do, you know, like, or, or don't have the ability to do like, there's, there's so many layers to this one that you're just not getting in others. And I think a lot of that does come down to the fact that with, if you think about most of the princess movies, there's a, the, the main protagonist, there is the man who saves them. And the villains are the wicked stepmother, the stepsisters, mm -hmm. like it's some sort of woman. I think the fascinating thing about Beauty and the Beast that allows for all this is that the villain is a man mm -hmm. and that she's with what isn't really a man at the time, like is learning to become because that's what that's what makes this one unique from all the others, because every other one, it's, you know, Cinderella, Sleeping Beauty, they all have evil step somethings. Yeah. You know, but in this movie, she doesn't have an evil step anything. She just has Gaston who won't leave her alone. She, in fact, doesn't even have a mother. Yeah. Like we really never find out anything about Maurice. Maurice yeah. doing great here. And yeah, I mean, Gaston just symbolizes so much more of a villain than like yeah. this evil stepmother character does in these other princess movies. Gaston essentially is a symbol for misogyny in society. Yeah. Oh my God. The line where he's looking at that. How can you read this about pictures? Women are going to get ideas and then they're going to start. It's the best. It's so yeah. great. Because it's so on the nose and people are like, oh, that's sexist. Yeah, no shit, it's sexist. It's supposed to be. It's even better when you remember there are pictures in that book. There are pictures in that book. That we saw true. them. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Um, I, it's one of the things, like, I, I've seen three different productions of the stage play of Beauty and the Beast. And if you haven't had an opportunity to watch, like, the Broadway stage performance of Beauty and the Beast, take an opportunity to do so the additions that Alan Menken adds to it, because it, it flushes it out, right? Like, this movie's, like, what? An hour, an hour and 20 minutes? Five, yeah, something like so that. So, like, the stage plays, like, two and a half hours. Mm -hmm. there, there are additions to it that, like, 
build on it. The songs, me, Gaston's song in the stage play is one of the funniest Broadway pieces you'll ever hear. It's it's him as he's going to propose to Belle and ask her to marry him. And it's just him singing about himself. It's, Mm -hmm. It's fantastic. It's wonderful. It, we get a lot of lines from it in the movie still, but like it adds more to it. I love this. I, I love this movie. I love everything about Beauty and the Beast. Disney's Beauty and the Beast is just this absolutely phenomenal masterpiece that came out. I feel connected to it because it was my first stage play that I, or my first musical I was in. I feel connected to it because it came out the year I was born. Mm-hmm. It's everything. Even like thinking back on it, I, I didn't realize how much I liked Beauty and the Beast. And this was like one of the only Disney movies I owned on VHS mm-hmm. as a kid. Like it's always been there. There was a moment in the last year and a half that we've been doing this podcast. I watched Beauty and the Beast. And I was like, I'm going to watch Beauty and the Beast again. Yeah. Right yeah, then. Yeah. Back to yeah. back. Yeah. And it was great. I just love this movie so much. Just put you in a good mood. Yeah, it does. Well, I always, I always have to bring this up. I brought it up on the last podcast and I need to make sure people understand, but I'm especially good at expectorating is the best line in any song ever. Um, and, and it really just needs to keep being addressed over and over. I need to build like a, I need a shirt that says I'm especially good at expectorating (laughs) because that is the best part. And, and, and then we'll kind of get out of this, but the Gaston, Gaston song, cause you brought it up. Gaston song in this movie is I be prepared obviously comes out a couple years later and is is stunning yeah. absolutely ridiculous hard to not say that's the defining one but that's more because of like the nazi symbolism and all of the stuff yeah. that's going on with that this song which is just a guy in a bar who's really upset because this girl hurt his feelings and he's got such an ego and the way that lefou plays him and gets him okay we got to get him back up because that's the only way we're ever going to get out of this like you know best sidekick in history and how Gaston starts to feel himself. And the song at the beginning is, you know, nobody does this like Gaston. Nobody does this like Gaston. And then finally he just gets up out of the chair and he just says, I am. A sp-. And it's just, it's so incredible. It's one of one of my favorite musical scenes in a movie. I think it's just, it's it's a fascinating moment. And um, yeah, I just, I, I love yeah. it. I just love yeah. it. Yeah. Uh, and I love Monster Dark. Like Monster he's Dark, a great character. Is, yeah, I, I love the fact that he is, uh, like, he's voiced by who he is. Because as a Canadian kid, like, I grew up with the TV show Reboot. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you know that one. Phil. No idea what that is. Uh so it's this. It's it's the first fully CGI television show. Okay, uh, and it's about these people who live inside a computer, and the villain in that is is Megabyte, and he's voiced by the same actor who plays Monster Dark. Okay, and it's just so terrifying when you know that. Okay. And like if it hits me again in that childhood where it's like ooh, because his voice is just so terrifying. Yeah, I, it's a great the the voice actor on that is fantastic. And Monsieur Dark is like a character that's really not in that much of the movie. Is a really solid like yeah small character in this movie. But um, but I think that speaks to the point where we were talking about where all the everybody. characters in this movie just yeah. matter. Yep. And that's something that you don't really see a lot in animation um, or yeah. they just try too hard to make the character like, oh, it's quirky because it's whatever. It's it's this kind of fish or this kind of animal like it is, well, it's a cricket. Look, it's a cricket like it's a cricket. It's a lucky cricket. You know, yeah, like it's things exactly. like that, that, you know, they don't really have a personality. But all right, John, well, love Beauty and the Beast. Could talk about Beauty and the Beast for hours, but I got to go. Yes. Home. Um, yeah. So 
Anyway, thank you all for listening. Next week, we're jumping into number 27, which is going to be uh, The Witch from 2015 for John and Magnolia from 1999 for me. If you haven't seen Magnolia before, it comes with a it's depressing warning and um, it's depressing. It's depressing. It's depressing. I'm curious to see what John will think about the uh, the music moment in that one, which you've never <laughs> seen Magnolia, right? I haven't. It's one of those pieces. OK, there's windows or missing blocks in my PTA experience. Well, good. I'm curious to see what you'll think about the uh, wise up scene when that comes, because I'm sure that based on your trumpet theory today, I'm very curious what that'll be like, but keep an eye out for when we're going to be podcasting about that uh, episode number 27. If you are a survivor fan, I did do the cast assessment for season 43, which I just did last week. So keep an eye out. Me and Alexa will be coming back on Wednesday night to podcast about, uh, I think we're doing our prop bet game. So that'll be coming up on September 7th. So we're in a season for Survivor, which hopefully we'll get some more people listening to this podcast and we'll get things moving along. But John, thanks as always. And uh, we'll be back at some point next week. We haven't decided on a date yet, but we'll figure it out. And we'll talk to you all later.